I think at the end of the day, it's um, who do you envision you're going to have the most successful and therefore profitable relationship with in the long term. And that's a combination of all those things together. Hi, I'm Kyle Poyer from OpenView's expansion team, where I help software companies accelerate their revenue growth so they can become market leaders. This season on Build, we're dedicating every episode to a different SaaS benchmark. Think growth rates, unit economics, the rule of 40, and so on. Each week on Build, I'll speak with VCs to find out what they're looking for in a new investment, as well as operators to get the inside track on how to actually hit those lofty benchmarks. Today's episode is about fundraising. What the fundraising process looks like for a founder, when they should be engaging with VCs, and how to choose from multiple term sheets. I'm joined by Ricky Pelletier, a partner at OpenView, and Zach Hemraj, co-founder and CEO of Lupio. Ricky, thanks for joining the OpenView Build podcast. It's great to have you on. Happy to be here. And today we want to talk about fundraising. Uh, before we do that, can you tell us about your background and how you got started in the world of venture capital? Uh, sure. So uh, I've been at OpenView for about seven years now. Um, prior to this, I was doing some later stage investing at a growth equity firm that was more generalist investing. I uh, wanted to focus more on software and get with earlier stage companies and ended up at OpenView, like I said, seven years ago. I started investing right out of college, though, and actually in college as well. So you're a perfect person to talk about fundraising. What was actually, what was your first job and did it influence where you ended up at all? Uh, I'll let you be the judge of whether or not it influenced anything. I worked at a machine shop that actually, um, we manufactured lines and, and then ran these, uh, these lines that cleaned the oil off of products um, that were made. So it's kind of a weird, weird business. But basically, you know, as any sort of metal item is created, it gets a lot of grease and oil on it. That has to be cleaned off before it can go anywhere else. So we did that. Uh, so I, would, I was 12 years old uh, working at this factory, sweeping floors and packing boxes. You know, if we want to be really poetic, we could say you do that with early stage software companies, polish them and really get them on the track to, uh, to continue to, to, to grow smoothly. I think we're reaching there, but yeah. <laughs> Just a little bit. Yeah. Uh, you know, so, so yeah, let's get into uh, fundraising. And I want to start at a pretty high level. Could you walk us through the fundraising landscape? Like what are the different options for a founder? I'm probably not to, not supposed to say this as a uh, as a VC investor, but by far and away the best option is customers as a funding source, right? Customers driving revenue, getting cash from them. That is the the ultimate funding source, and you know ultimately is the goal uh, of all businesses, I believe, right? Is to be self self sustaining on customer revenue. But that said, you know the venture ecosystem, debt ecosystem, they all exist for a reason to get a lot of these companies off the ground and um, help them accelerate their growth. Uh, so you know there are kind of a multitude of options. Um, there's friends and family. There's high net worth individuals, angel investors who do this more professionally. There's institutional capital such as OpenView, which you know runs the gambit from seed stage funds all the way up through large private equity players. We obviously fit squarely within the expansion stage. Those are all more on the equity side. Then there's the debt side, which uh, again, that can come from friends and family doing a a safe note uh, with uh, an early stage investor or a convertible note, 
all the way up to um, bank debt and dedicated debt funds that will help uh, kind of fuel your growth strategy. But uh, kind of splits into customer funding is its own own beast, uh, and then debt versus equity. Got it. And so if customer funding isn't enough, like what are some of the pros and cons between the equity side and the debt side? I'll, I'll tackle uh, the debt side first. Quite frankly, a lot of times it's cheaper. Equity is the most expensive thing. You know, ultimately, if these companies have great success, you're giving up a piece of your business, uh, usually a pretty healthy chunk of your business. So debt, debt is definitely cheaper, and also they can close very, very quickly. Uh, often, the issue with debt is, is a couple things. A lot of times, you know, they are simply a capital provider, so they're not adding value at the board. Um, you know, not to say they can't add value, but they're not rolling up their sleeves and really helping you build the business because they just have a different set of invent, uh, incentives usually. Uh, additionally, if things don't go well, it's debt, right? Uh, you have to pay it back at some point, and that sits ahead of all the investors and the founders and all common shareholders. So in a downside scenario, the debt provider can be the only one who gets paid back often. Also in a very bad scenario, uh, you can trip a covenant and they can own your business. So it can be really, really tough. Um, That said, it it can also be a great source of financing when the time is right. Equity by nature, again, is a little bit more expensive. You get real active uh, involved partners around the table they are completely aligned with the incentives of growing the business and building the business uh, in, in the right way because they make money when the company gets sold ultimately and when there's a great outcome, that is the, the goal. So there's really, really strong alignment with equity providers. Totally. And you know, let's say so you start a founder, you are ready to, to start a fundraising process. What, what does the process look like? What are the steps involved? I think it's, it's it's first and foremost figuring out what your objectives are with that with the fundraise. Like, what exactly do you want to accomplish? Because I, I think all too often, you know, we encounter we encounter CEOs and founders who um, come to the market with an expectation of we need to raise X million dollars, and we ask why, and it's well, that's what the VCs told me I need to raise, um, which to us is just the wrong answer, right? That you know the right answer would be, you know, we did this this set of analyses and we came back that in order to make this level of product investment, this level of go-to-market investment, uh, and leave ourselves a, a cushion, we need Y million dollars. So so I think it's it's first and foremost figuring out what exactly are you going to use the, the funding for so that you can then go figure out, okay, how do I want to get this funding? Because again, it might come come down, you only need a couple million bucks and maybe the the least dilutive and best way to do that is uh, to go tap on you know some friends and family or, or maybe even a, a, a small capital line with a with a bank, or it might be you need a real partner around the table. So I, I think that's the first step before you do anything is figure out what you're going to use it for. When is the right time to kick off a fundraising process? Like, are there milestones a company needs to be thinking about, or is is there a is there a timing element that goes into it? Yeah, the only definitive answer I'll I'll, I'll give there, Kyle, is. There is no singular right time to, to, to start a, a fundraising process. I, I'd say the only thing is raise money when you don't need money. Um, I, I think it probably goes without saying. If you're if you're in a point of desperation, you know you're trying to figure out how to make payroll in the next month. That's probably the wrong time to be raising money. So raise money when when you least need it. It's also when you'll find people want to give you money um, most commonly. There, there are some other things to it, seasonal aspects of, of fundraising as well. Um, summer can be 
a tough time sometimes for, for some VCs. We at OpenView tend to do a lot of deals in the summer um, because I think uh, some some other folks are uh, are sleeping um, in the but, south of France. Yes, exactly, <laughs> exactly. Then there's you know uh, just just planning ahead. I always uh, assume it's going to take longer than it takes. And actually, that goes to my next question: like, how early should a founder be engaging VCs? Like, does it only happen when you're ready to raise? Should you, should you start a few months early? I think the the best thing to do is get to know people over time. Ultimately, we're talking about a marriage here, and it's a hell of a lot tougher to get out of this than it is an actual marriage. Uh, so you should you should get to know these people over a long period of time, test them, see if they can actually add value. You know, I, I'd say on average for for OpenView, our length that we get to know people before investing is something like eighteen to twenty four months. So we're, we we love those situations. Obviously, you know sometimes. You, you find the right partner and just as you're going to market as well, uh, and those situations happen. But I think you should always be engaging with folks. You can also learn a lot from the conversations. You can use them for market intel, what's going on in the market. Um, so you can try and get information back out of the VCs as, as opposed to them continuously sucking information out of you. <laughs> you know, you're setting yourself up to, uh, <laughs> for success here. You know, so let's imagine founders had a lot of conversations with VCs, had a good process, had so much interest in their round that they've received multiple term sheets. How should they make a decision on which to go with? It's obviously a very personal decision at the end of the day, and I don't, I don't think there's a uh, a black and white answer that says if you follow this this rubric, you'll you'll come to the right answer. You know, the way I would prioritize it is, you know, there's there's obviously valuation, there's terms, there's the firm and their brand and the individual partner. I think at the end of the day, it's um, who do you envision you're going to have the, the most successful and therefore profitable relationship with in the long term, and that's a combination of all those things together. But a lot of it comes back to you know the relationship and the chemistry, right? Um, is this someone that I want to go to war with? Because you know it's not always going to be up and to the right. Things aren't always going to go well, and you're going to hit bumps along the way. So making sure that that's a person you want to be in the trenches with, I think, is probably one of the most important things. Everything else kind of has to be there as well. But if, if you don't have that, I think that's a that's a really, really tough thing. But it, yeah, again, there's no black and white answer to that. Um, and I think also getting getting your team involved, you know, some of your, your other management team members as well as your board actively involved in that conversation so that they can help you come to the right decision is, is the best thing. And if you've been talking to the VCs for 18 to 24 months, you probably have a lot more data points to make that informed decision. Correct. You know, not to put you on the hot seat too much here, but for those who are new to term sheets and negotiating with a VC, what are the major things that a founder should be aware of? Yeah, it, it comes down to... Um, a few things, right? It's it's governance, control, structure, and price. So governance and control, right? This is this is your board as well as your protected provisions and kind of negative control rights. What can the board and or the investor prevent me from doing as a founder or prevent us from doing as a company? Um, so you want to understand those. Um, probably goes without saying, you're, you are going to give up some rights to your investors uh, in exchange for the capital that you're getting. But understanding those, going in eyes wide open, I, I think is important. The next one uh, I, I talked about was just structure. So understanding the specific nature of the, the actual security that they're providing you. Does it have any 
any strange features, any unique features? Is it very vanilla? What exactly happens in various exit scenarios, just so you understand the, the actual structure? Is there a dividend? Um, is it participating versus non-participating? And, and it's not about judging one security versus another. It's, it's just going in eyes wide open. The last thing is valuation, which is a hot button issue. But I'd say, you know, all of these things are also intertwined, right? Um, you might get the higher valuation, but maybe there's some structure or some additional rights that you didn't think you were going to give up. So they tend to all kind of uh, come together. Final question for you. Looking at the rest of the year and you know, looking back at last year or so, what trends have you observed with the fundraising environment and what's in store? I think it's more the same, quite frankly. Great companies are growing faster than ever. And therefore, they're, they're raising bigger rounds than ever as well. You know, we're seeing the Series A companies where three years ago, four years ago, whatever it was, they would have raised 5 to $7 million. Now they're raising $14 million, $15 million. And, you know, Series B companies are regularly raising 25 to $40 million, which, which would have been 12 to 15. So I, I think that will continue to, to head in that direction just by nature of there's a lot of capital out there. Um, a lot of VCs looking to deploy that capital and a lot of great businesses out there, which, which does bring me back to the very first point, which, you know, the question you asked Kyle about basically how do you start fundraising and what's the, what's the best thing to start with? Don't let a VC dictate your process and don't let a VC dictate your fundraise. It, it really does come back to figure out what the right amount is for the business to be successful and then go back and try and raise that amount. Great advice. Thanks again for joining us, Ricky. Happy to. We had some really great takeaways from Ricky. Now we'll hear from Zach Hemraj, co-founder and CEO of Lupio, about the story behind taking the company from bootstrap to funded and the lessons he learned along the way. Well, Zach, thanks for joining this episode of OpenView Build. No problem. Thanks for having me. To kick things off, could you talk a bit about your background and your company, Lupio? Yeah, for sure. So uh, as you mentioned, my name is Zach, uh, one of three co-founders of Lupio, uh, and I operate as a CEO today. My background, uh, I started off, you can zoom all the way back to, to school. I, I did computer engineering in university, and so a very technical background. And really, my only professional experience before co-founding this company was spending eight years with another venture-backed Sequoia-backed uh, company. And so we were. I was there for about eight years as the company grew from 20 to 300 people. I uh, started off my career there in software development, spent a couple of years working as a, as a software engineering manager, um, but also got to spend two years working as a sales engineer, got to live in three different cities. So I got to see a lot of change um, as that company evolved. And I think it was like two or three years into into that company journey where I caught the bug. I just I just knew I was going to start a company one day, just didn't know when or, or what it would be. At one point, I thought I was going to go do my MBA. But you know, after working in the growth stage, it just scrapped that idea very quickly. So went through a really cool journey with that company for about eight years. And then um, the idea came about for Lupio. And the time was right for, for my co-founders as well. Um, and we decided to, to found a company called Lupio that basically supercharges the response process for RFPs, RFIs, security questionnaires, um, all of those kind of complex activities in the sales cycle that are requirements based that the sales teams just frankly hate to do. Um, we thought we would you know, find a way to make it easier to do through centralizing kind of a body of knowledge, make it accessible for sales teams and then leveraging automation tools and kind of learning mechanisms to make that whole process a lot more seamless. So we're operating in, uh, in about 400 companies today. 
And for the first few years of uh, that journey, you and your co-founders bootstrapped the business. And you know what led you down that path? It's different from you know other startups, especially startups out west or uh, you know in the Bay Area. It's an interesting question. Um, frankly, we didn't always think we would bootstrap the company. It was floated around in those early days of going the venture route or going the incubator route. I think maybe the story even starts with like our backgrounds as, as co-founders. Uh, I think one of the unique opportunities that we had was that we had three co-founders, which I don't think is a very common number um, in the early days. And so we could all do kind of different elements of that early startup life cycle. We had experience kind of building product. We had experience doing some business development. So we just kind of got to work. I also, you know, working as a sales engineer um, in my my previous life, had a good idea of the domain and kind of the problems and challenges the companies would have faced. So it allowed us to really put our skill sets together and, and kind of get to work. So those were kind of the early days. And I think what we started to do that looking back seems just so clear um, and so much like the right thing to do was just kind of talking to, to early potential customers and prospects and really starting the sales process before we even had a functional product. Right. And so there was a lot of literature we came across at the time. I think everything from books like um, Lean B2B and The Mom Test, which is really about kind of conducting early customer interviews. We read a lot of that literature. Um, and so we were starting the process of just socializing and, and kind of putting the idea out there um, and started to realize very early that there was a real problem. And so when, when it came time to actually launch our beta, we did have a, a bunch of potential customers lined up that were, that were ready to kind of use it and, and give us feedback. I still remember there was one day, it was like late summer of, of 2014. There was, we were kind of sitting around my, my three co me and the two co-founders. And uh, I looked at Jafar, who was kind of running sales at the time and said, hey, next, next customer or next person that calls the Lupio line, just ask them to pay for it, see what happens. <laughs> um, and they did. And it was like a small subscription, very, very looking back, like, you know, very, very minimal. We celebrated and I think that kind of started the process. And, you know, there were a few things from there that kind of led to the early traction. And once we got to about 20 or 30 customers, and especially starting to realize that a lot of our customers in the B2B space were paying us kind of annual upfront contracts, it gave us a little bit of runway to work with. And then we just kind of kept building off of that. Yeah, having customers fund your growth is, of course, the best way of raising money. And it's also the best way of knowing that you've really found product market fit you know, looking back at it, what impact do you think bootstrapping had on the business? It had a lot of impact. You know, I think, first of all, one of the key words that come to mind is, is discipline. Just the way you think about money, the way you think about the unit economics of your business, you're kind of forced to figure those things out uh, a little faster than maybe uh, a seed stage company would, because you're being really conscious of, you know, what's the output for every dollar you deploy? Um, how much does a lead cost you? How much? How far can you actually stretch your engineering efforts, and how lean can you be um, in every line of code that you write? So, for us, I, I think that really forced us to be a customer-centric company. So, being really attention, like oriented around customer feedback, and and providing a really good support engine for making sure that we were responding to tickets in a timely manner, or creating these really personal, remarkable experiences. Right? Things that what can you do as a small bootstrap company that some big vendor can't do? Um, and I think for us in those early days, it was that ultra personal experience that was very feedback oriented. And we gained a lot of our early customers that were excited about partnering with the startup and actually shaping the product and kind of standing for something. So um, it forced a lot of that discipline earlier on. It forced a lot of that customer centricity uh, earlier on. It, it kind of put in a level of 
frugality, I guess, that was um, is still with us today in terms of how we think about spending money and, and not abusing it. Um, so I think a lot of those elements were instilled in us from the early days of being bootstrapped. Definitely. It's hard to be less uh, customer-centric. If a customer churns, it comes out directly out of you know your pocketbook. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. When other startups ask you, like, would you recommend bootstrapping to them or should they be bootstrapping their business? What, what do you say to founders that are thinking about that path? Yeah, Kyle, I get asked that question a lot by other, other founders um, in the community here. And um, my answer, you might not like it, is that it depends, right? It's like there's so many factors that kind of lead to that decision. And even like for me personally, if, if down the line I were to co-found another company one day and, and you'd ask me right now, would I bootstrap the company? I actually don't know. And I think there's so many factors from you know, looking at the market. Right? Are you are you disrupting an existing industry, or are you educating and creating kind of a new one, a new category? Because education usually is a lot more expensive. Are you going B two C or B two B? Because one of those routes usually is is more expensive as well, um, and costs you you know a lot of money from a marketing perspective. Um, what does the skill set and makeup of your founding team look like? For us, we were we were fortunate enough that we could get a product off the ground um, with just kind of our time and effort and our own blood and sweat. What stage of life is your your founding team at? How long can you actually live without a salary? There's so many of these kind of like little factors that maybe, you know, you don't think about from, you know, is it the right strategy for the business, but they're all kind of interconnected. What does the competitive landscape look like? Is it hot? Because if you need to kind of disrupt an existing competitive landscape, then, you know, maybe that's going to factor into your decision as well. So I think sometimes these debates get a little bit religious. And I think it's really about just making the best business decision, right? It's like, what output are you trying to get? as a business? Is it, is it about a certain scale or growth? Are you trying to build a lifestyle business? And I think all of these things need to be put in the melting pot together. Um, and I think if I were to ever go down that path again, that's kind of how I would approach it. And, you know, I, I don't think there's necessarily one thing that's a lot better. I think there's a lot of pros and cons in either camp. I mentioned some on the bootstrap side, but on the VC side, kind of, you know, being forced to grow quickly can also have a lot of benefits as well um, and force you to figure out a lot of things very early. So, yeah, I, I think I think it depends. Speaking of factors changing, you guys did recently decide to raise capital after bootstrapping for you know three or four years, and you announced a nine million dollar Series A earlier this year. What led to that decision? Great question. So maybe maybe to answer that, I can even even rewind a little bit and talk about kind of the the VC journey, if you will, up until that point. So we were we were true bootstrap companies, zero outside capital, and there not even any angel investment. And so we, it was all something we were proud of, and but we we knew that there could be a point in time where it was it was right to kind of raise uh, a large venture round. And so we were fortunate enough to kind of build this brand in the market, and we were getting a lot of traction. Um, and VCs were reaching out to us. I would say even for two to three years leading up to the investment, and we were always open to conversations, and we were tracking everything. So we even had our own. We called it a VCRM, <laughs> where we had like about fifty to sixty kind of VCs with conversations tracked all in there. And, and that was really just kind of allowed us to put that all, all those conversations into one place. And the dialogue was, hey, we're not looking right now, but this is kind of what we're working on. And maybe you find that interesting and let's stay in touch. And maybe the, the time will come one day where we want to partner with the VC. So I think that kind of openness to conversation earlier on was was probably vital in kind of building a relationship and, and visibility uh, in the market as well. I think another thing kind of leading up to it was was also being very explicit in those conversations about even with ourselves around, hey, now's not the right time, but when are we going to like formally reevaluate this, right? Not saying, oh, sometime in the future, but that we, there were times where we were like, hey, 
it'll be six months from now where we actually reevaluate this. And that's the message that we would go to market with. We said, hey, we're heads down right now. We're really busy. We're doing all these things. We're going to reevaluate in six months. And that just kind of created a nice natural rhythm and cadence kind of leading up to it. And so when we kind of got to this point mid last year, a lot of conversations were happening internally kind of with our, our founding team and other leaders in the company. And it became clear to me that we needed kind of to take this conversation a little bit more seriously. And so what I actually did was I drafted a set of about, you know, nine or 10 questions. I called, I looked up the other, the email the other day, I call it the big decision. And I sent the, this, these questions out to, to my founding team. And it was all things around like, what does success look like for you? And you kind of go into this company, you have all these, building a company, you have all these ambitions of things you want to do. And then if you're fortunate enough to kind of come out the other side, with some traction and some success as a bootstrap company, you kind of have to ask yourself these big like existential questions again, right? Like what does success look like? Because there's nothing wrong with building a, a profitable, you know, growth stage company that is, you know, making money. There's nothing wrong with that. So we had to kind of recalibrate and ask ourselves what success looked like and get aligned on that question first. We had to ask questions about the market. We even asked ourselves, there was this one question that I think probed a lot of conversation. We said, hey, if our biggest competitor were to release this headline tomorrow that said they raised this much money, how would we react? If the answer is we would react, then that's that already tells me what the answer to this question is. Because as a, as a company that's trying to be an industry leader, you don't ever want to be reactive. Um, and so there was all these kinds of questions. And so we went away and then we kind of reconvened at breakfast and we all kind of put the answers on the table. And I think um, it was at that point that it was just super clear that the time was right. The same day, uh, we told the rest of the leadership team and then we just kind of went from there. And so it was a, a really interesting time. I think from a milestone perspective, because you asked that question as well, um, timing just made sense as well, because we had kind of reached the, the financial metrics of what a, a typical Series A company would raise, but we never you know, had that seed round. Um, so you know, we had a good idea of what those metrics were from a growth rate perspective, market penetration, annual recurring revenue. Um, and so timing-wise in that capacity, it just, it just made sense as well. And, you know, something that goes hand in hand with raising around is starting to increase your burn rate, which, you know, it's t- difficult to get comfortable with if any burn has been coming out of your pocket uh, until that point. How did you uh, get comfortable with burn and figuring out how much to burn after having been cash constrained before? Yeah, I'm, I'm still not comfortable with it. <laughs> <laughs> but, um, you know, I, I think it's I think one is, is first being very upfront with the fact that you don't know the answer to that question. And I think that's where having a really good partner is important. Um, and so when we were looking for an investment partner, finding somebody who we knew we could have that conversation with openly and kind of get some 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 market best practices around that was, was very important. And I think it started with that conversation. One thing, a healthy place to start is getting a line of what your goals are from a growth perspective whether if your core metric is annual recurring revenue, then maybe that's a starting point. Um, and as a bootstrap company, what's kind of nice is that you have this history of unit economics behind you, where you, you kind of have an idea of, you know, what you can do in somewhat of a healthy way. And, you know, although we were a bootstrap company, we were still growing very aggressively, right? We went from 10 people one year to 23 the next year to 48 the next year. We were still kind of in this rapid, great, rapid growth. And so I think we had an idea of how, much we could grow comfortably. And so you kind of weigh that in the melting pot with what you're trying to get to from a revenue perspective and maybe start with that and then work backwards. And what was really nice for us is that we had a pretty thorough operating model 
Um, and I'll give full credit to one of my co-founders, Jafar, for you know having a background in building these kinds of models and, and really built a really amazing thorough one that allowed us to kind of play with the different inputs and variables around you know all the different cash economics. And so we would just start with a goal in mind and kind of work backwards and then just see if that kind of made sense and validated with our investment partner, you know, validated amongst ourselves and our leadership team, uh, make sure that we kind of are covering any risk. But I think that was one of the biggest factors as well. Then I think another factor is, is having a good awareness of what kind of company you want to be in the future, right? So some Series A companies, they're on this path where they, they know they want to raise a Series B in the foreseeable future. And there's some literature that says that outlook is probably 12 to 24 months. And so you kind of plan for that. But maybe you're trying to operate as a company where this is the only round of capital you ever take or one of only two. How much risk is in the business and how much uncertainty is there? So you kind of have to plan for that as well. So um, I think the answer is just to make it an, a bit, an open, healthy conversation and dialogue and, and try to put some data and hypotheses behind it. Um, and then just kind of go from there, because I, I don't think anybody can ever be 100% certain on that answer. But you do have to put some kind of data and reasoning and justification behind it and not do it blindly and, and you know, back it up with a good model. So that's kind of how we approached it. And yeah, again, we, we raised the, the round in November. So it's been a good journey up until this point. We'll continue to monitor it. But I, I think it's one of those things you just have to continually reevaluate. Yeah, and you guys are definitely analytical and thoughtful, especially when it comes to any major decision. Final question for you here. So, you know, as a startup based in Toronto, you mentioned having a lot of inbound interest from VCs, but it might be hard for other companies outside of, say, the Bay Area to attract as much funding. What advice do you have for startups outside of the Bay Area or outside of, you know, the big tech hubs? Generally, and, I, and this is more you know, of an anecdote, but talking to other founders around North America, there is a lot of interest from VCs in general to look way beyond the Valley, um, the Bay Area, and also outside of North America as well, right? Um, so I think that is helping our efforts. And you know, we've only been around for four years. And so before that, I think it was a very different climate. So I think VCs and investors are looking and are very open to the dialogue. And maybe that wasn't necessarily the case 10 years ago. Um, so I think embracing that is one. I think, funny enough, I actually think that building a really good employer brand is connected to this. For us, what that meant was, what do we stand for as a company? What can we offer that you know Bay Area companies don't? And kind of you build this like, anti-Bay Area narrative around like, you know, what, what do you stand for as a company and kind of build your employer brand. So at least you can get some reputation in the city that way. And that usually helps um, in terms of, of what you stand for. Then what we really leveraged earlier on, and, and we weren't thinking about it from an investment strategy, but it ended up being one, was customer advocacy. So we invested in customer advocacy very early to make sure that, you know, all of our happy customers were speaking about us, whether it's in um, online review sites like Captera or G2 Crowd. And that was really with the intent of helping with our marketing and customer acquisition efforts. But it really ended up happening, uh, kind of pushing along the conversation of our investment efforts as well, because uh, a lot of investors are, are looking on those same channels to understand how um, much value companies are driving within the market. So I think really investing in customer advocacy early is probably going to be your best sell. Right, because all of that advocacy lives online, and anybody can access that content um, and that advocacy. So that's something that we lean on pretty heavily, and it kind of indirectly, I think, helped our financing efforts. Great advice, Zach. I think when I think about this conversation, the themes that come to mind are discipline, customer centricity, and being thoughtful. 
and analytical in, in your approach to decision making. So really appreciate you taking the time and joining the OV Build podcast. My pleasure. Thanks for, thanks for having me. Thanks for tuning in. Make sure you subscribe to our podcast on iTunes, Spotify, or anywhere else you listen to podcasts. And please give us a five-star rating while you're at it. You can compare yourself to your peers by checking out our benchmarking data at benchmarks.openviewpartners.com. Check out the site and please participate in the 2018 benchmarking survey while you're at it. Outside of podcasts, we produce content daily on OpenView Labs. You can follow us on Twitter at OpenViewVenture and subscribe to our newsletter, which is sent out to over 100,000 SaaS operators every Saturday morning. Uh, And you can do that by going to openviewpartners.com forward slash newsletter. Until next time.